This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. For the Wild podcast is brought to you in part by the Calliopeia Foundation and listeners like you. Calliopeia supports projects interweaving spirituality, culture, and ecology. We are grateful for their support and the support of grassroots contributions from listeners. To learn more about the Calliopeia Foundation, visit calliopeia.org. To make a donation to For the Wild, visit forthewild.world slash donate or support us through Patreon. Hey, For the Wild community, Carter Lou here to present this week's Homebound episode. Homebound brings you wisdom from the For the Wild archives, offering guidance and perspective to anchor us and help us to navigate this current moment. Today we are re-listening to our conversation with Jackie Patterson on eco-justice in the age of the Anthropocene, originally aired in 2017. Jackie Patterson has worked as a director, researcher, program manager, coordinator, advocate, and activist working on women's rights, violence against women, HIV and AIDS, racial justice, economic justice, and environmental and climate justice. We're bringing this episode back from the archives because over the past couple of weeks, we have seen far too many narratives of disposability when it comes to the communities who are already impacted the most when it comes to environmental, social, and economic injustice. Jackie reminds us that we must strategically address the needs of our communities. For when we work to uplift those at the bottom, we all rise. In light of this conversation with Jackie, we are asking ourselves, why is it that so many of us are willing to sacrifice others? Where did we first learn disposability? Hello and welcome to For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayana Young. Today we are speaking with Jacqueline Patterson. Jacqueline is the director of the NAACP Environmental and Climate Justice Program. Since 2007, Patterson has served as coordinator and co-founder of Women of Color United. Jackie Patterson has worked as a researcher, program manager, coordinator, advocate, and activist working on women's rights, violence against women, HIV and AIDS, racial justice, economic justice, and environmental and climate justice. Patterson served as a senior women's rights policy analyst for ActionAid, where she integrated a women's rights lens for the issue of food rights, macroeconomics, and climate change, as well as the intersection of violence against women and HIV-AIDS. Previously, she served as assistant vice president of HIV-AIDS program for IMA World Health, providing management for technical assistance to medical facilities and programs in 23 countries in Africa and the Caribbean. 
Patterson served as the Outreach Project Associate for the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities and Research Coordinator for John Hopkins University. She also served as a U.S. Peace Corps volunteer in Jamaica and the West Indies. Wow. Um, and there's even more to your bio, but what an incredible body of work you have, Jacqueline. Thank you so much for being on the show with us today. Sure, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. So I just want to start off by saying that we at For the Wild here and this whole team know that any initiative for ecological renewal must be tethered to intersectional justice, or it just becomes another manifestation of that which we seek to dismantle and transform. So I want to kind of set the stage and I want to speak to the underrepresentation of people of color in the environmental and climate movements. And I want to acknowledge the interwoven systemic, physical, spiritual dimensions that continue to silence the voices of those most marginalized in this system. Mm. And now we're just seeing how these systemic inequalities are being exacerbated as the climate grows more unpredictable, as public services and environmental degradation and toxification only worsen, as gentrification continues as a new form of colonization, and the prison industrial complex increasingly consumes communities striving to survive. And uh, just thinking about the first shackled journey across the Atlantic and the era of sharecropping, which held as much violence and lack of autonomy as slavery did, to the intentional hyper-segregated design of urban spaces and the disproportionate exposure to toxicity of fence-line communities. And then the relationship between people of color and nature has been severed, manipulated, and convoluted by colonial forces. And I've really been sitting in this train of thought a lot recently. And uh, Jacqueline, Mm. you have worked tirelessly just researching so many different avenues of climate justice, environmental justice, uh, racial justice. I mean, the, the list goes on. And I'd love if you could start off by uh, explaining to us how your work has been guided by history uh, towards a future of uh, intersectionality and justice. Mm, thank you. <laughs> Yeah, so I, I, my work really around environmental and climate justice has stemmed from, as you say, a history of doing work around, starting off with a view towards kind of more social services, and then with this kind of broad and and naive notion of quote unquote helping, and then 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 came enlightenment in terms of what actual. Uh, of how our systems of quote unquote helping are actually in some ways uh, keeping people in in powerlessness and um, keeping people oppressed in some ways and that we really have to, to think more transformatively. And that really came out of experiences from starting to do work on special education and public health and really recognizing that a lot of the special needs that existed when I was doing this work, particularly in Jamaica, were because of the way the the country and our larger kind of geopolitical system means that there is an amassing of wealth for a wealthy few where 
you know, we just take things like immunizations and, and healthy diets and so forth for granted in wealthy contexts, while in nations where uh, we're taking natural resources that they, and not really properly compensating people for the sharing of resources, they end up living in, in relative squalor in, in many cases and resulting in everything from poor sanitation to you know, lack of, of immunizations. And that actually resulted in the special needs that I was addressing through the special education programming. So I really recognize that, that while special education programming is always going to, to be needed because special needs develop from a number of different sources, there's also systemic ways that we can address our the way our economy and social systems are are designed so that these uh, the special needs don't even arise in the first place in terms of some that are based on on um, on these inequities so that's just an example but similarly with HIV I was doing work around HIV and AIDS and infectious diseases but and similarly with that particularly as I began to work with women who are disproportionately impacted by HIV in the global South and in the United States, it just, again, very quickly came to light how uh, sexism, patriarchy, and so forth really led to the the situations of women who, who were HIV positive, whether it was because of gender-based violence or whether it was because women felt forced into transactional sex because of, you know, the fact that we know that, that worldwide women make 70 cents on on the man's dollar and so that state of poverty the fact that women are often there's so many female-headed households so women feel forced into certain activities because they're they're needing to provide for their children so again everything that i every every you know place that i was where i was doing this work it just became very evident that quote unquote helping means to actually transform a system that's based on this notion of winners and losers and um, and really uplifting and making sure that there is uh, self-determination for, for folks so that we can change these systems so that people can provide for themselves. I'll pause there, but, um, but that's kind of part of the evolution and the ways that I saw this intersectionality, whether it's around gender, whether it's around global South nations and certainly our, our economy and how it's formed and how it is designed to where it's the people who are in power and making decisions are perpetuating the status quo in terms of the economic conditions of the many suffering from the the luxuries of a few, to paraphrase Martin Luther King. People are more and more awakening to the realities of the earth feeling the overwhelm of where to begin. And I think sometimes we start at helping the symptoms rather mm-hmm. than uh, the core of what's creating those system sim- symptoms, which is the system. So thank you for uh, acknowledging that for us. You know, part of your work, as you've been saying, not only spanned North America, but also the Caribbean and Africa. And mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm wondering... How does the cultural relationship that people of color hold with the environment and the land differ in the Caribbean and Africa in comparison to mainland North America? Mm. Yes. So in some ways, there's these linkages in terms of 
the traditional ways that people have lived with the land. And then we see how the U.S. and its kind of dominant culture that forces certain shifts. And so we know that from what I have observed from being in the Caribbean and in sub-Saharan Africa, that the folks live a lot closer with the land and really are in harmony with the land in ways that are a lot more evident and observed. So from subsistence farming and the fact that whether you're a professional, you know, going to an office or you are um, living in a rural area, subsistence farming is a lot more prevalent regardless of what um, station you have in society. And so that uh, that connection with the land in terms of its bounty actually feeding one's family uh, begs a certain understanding of the land, respect for the land, and as I said, harmony with the land. And also that a number of cultures, rituals and, and spirituality is connected with soil, is connected with water, and connected with the notion of the divine feminine in terms of um, the women as as birthing and the earth as birthing and seeing that real connection is a lot more prominent and prevalent in some of the global south cultures and nations. And so people of color in the United States who have, you know, more recently or in the distance past migrated or been brought here in the hulls of ships in some ways hold on to those values and cultures and but the practices um, become eroded by the forces of our of the United States society which is in some ways built on a very countering relationship with the earth in terms of extraction reckless extraction of natural resources and then in terms of taking people away from their land, the reckless extraction of of human of humanity in terms of the, the slave trade and so forth, the enslaved trade. And then and then, of course, the way that we even interrupt um, the natural regenerative cycles, whether it's development by some of these big ag corporations of terminator seeds um, or it is this notion of of growing food for fuel as opposed to what it's uh, originally supposed to be intended for. So there's, you know, so many ways that the disruptive nature of our dominant culture has taken people literally from their land or just the societal mores and norms are separating people from that relationship of harmony with the land.
Yeah, I even Ooh. think about um, the consumer nature culture. Mm. I mean, most of the time looking at um, whether it's the internet or ads for hiking or backpacking or any of these things. Um, and mm-hmm. and it's really strange how um, the segregation remains with nature and people of color. And I guess it kind yeah. of brings me to this other point that one of the greatest hindrances to a more just or inclusive culture is the unequal access to land mm-hmm. by different groups of people of color. And that in turn affects the ability of communities to live a healthy life and in deep connection to place, to land, to nature. Um, so while indigenous peoples have an inherent right to land through ancestry, and of course we know that so many of those treaties are broken. So I'm wondering how this lack of access to land and land ownership affects people of color, but you know, also black leadership in the environmental movement. Yeah. Whether it is the, so I'll even take an explicit example of the recent situation that happened in East Chicago, Indiana, um, where people who were in public housing discovered that over the decades that they lived in this public housing, they were being exposed to lead and arsenic in their soil at multifold times the quote-unquote allowable levels of lead and arsenic in our soil. And so once this came to light, the folks ended up with a 90-day notice to get out of, uh, of, where they, of where they were living and where some had been living for generations. One person we spoke to is 60-something years old, the only place she had ever known and had 90 days to move there were so many people who were affected. It was um, some like 300 households or so in this housing complex that um, they were, they didn't have enough section eight housing vouchers to even accommodate the folks in the state. And so not only did they have to move away from the only home that they've known, the only community they've ever known, and for multiple folks, the only state they've ever known. And so that kind of complete lack of control over one's, um, over one's destiny, over one's um, circumstances, um, the fact that, it, that that disruption and the fact that one's had to really focus inwardly to figure out how, how to cater for the needs of the family, but the people weren't really able to organize in the way that they might have been able to organize if they had had the stability of a place of control over the situation. Because even, you know, if they had all been homeowners, then there might have been some organizing they could have done to to try to push for, for remediation. But it was public housing, and therefore they were literally at the mercy of the state. Not the state as in the state of Indiana, but like, you know, the gov- government um, oversight over where they live because of the Section 8 situation. And so that's another example, as you said before, gentrification and ways that communities have historically been displaced by or forced into certain places by redlining. And, and then now in the, with this modern day gentrification and still 
suddenly existing redlining, people again are being displaced with changes in property values and changes in resources, meaning, you know, rental properties are, are more expensive, people being priced out of their homes, um, places where because of the connection with sea level rise, there's places where the it used to be that the coastal properties were the most uh, desired and they pushed people of color and uh, low-income communities away from those coastal properties because they were most of value. And now that the people of color and low-income folks are living on higher ground, more inland, that has become more valuable because sea level rise is inundating those coastal dwelling places and people are being further displaced from their original communities. So there's just so many examples of displacement and the the lack of power to fight back against and the lack of ability to be able to organize around it. But at the same time, people are organizing, finding the ways to, to, to organize, even with the East Chicago situation. Some of the people are living in Illinois now as opposed to Indiana or living very far away, but yet still they're, they're connect, keeping their connections and they're 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 fighting for the right to return. They're fighting for a proper level of remediation, and they're also fighting for resources to help them um, where they are. In other places, folks are fighting against gentrification and fighting against displacement, pushing for for ordinances that can can quell the um, the development that that would be happening to their communities and really helping to control how development happens and enabling them to stay developing, you know, implementing models like community land trusts and so forth. So people are, are, are starting to be able to strategically think of, of ways to address this constant displacement that communities are facing. Um, and so that, that's happening. So I don't want to kind of make it sound, you know, really kind of perpetuate this, this deep victimology, but also really saying that people are fighting against back against multiple you know, mechanisms of oppression that they're being assailed with, besieged with. Mm. Sorry. Yeah, no, that was not. No, there, there's so much there. Mm-hmm. And when I was asking that question, I wasn't even thinking about how the constant displacement disrupts organizational mm. focus and power because you're trying to organize and then you have to move and you're having to figure out where to move and you don't have stability and how much energy that takes Mm -hmm. away from actually focusing on standing up for remediation rights and uh, property, I mean, all of it. I'd recently interviewed Clayton Thomas Mueller, Mm -hmm. uh, who's an indigenous Mm -hmm. activist out of Ottawa in Canada. And Mm -hmm. we had this really beautifully intense conversation about land rights and if we're not talking about access to land and land ownership in this dominant culture we're not really discussing solutions for climate justice because if Mm -hmm. the most of the land is still in the ownership of the white dominant supremacist culture and we're not allowing the system to dismantle so that people of color and marginalized people can actually have access to land for growing food for connect reconnecting with soil and nature and um, uh, balancing the power the access to land is so fundamental and I think it kind of gets sidelined or like brushed under the rug a lot especially in the environmental movement 
Um, of course, you know, I, th- I think we hear a lot more about indigenous rights to land, which we should. Of course, that is so uh, important and true mm-hmm. that this was the first peoples of this continent. It was their land. But for uh, other groups, other people of color, um, the inequality of land ownership is just something that's been on my mind a lot lately. And if there's anybody else that's coming to mind, any other groups, initiatives that are seeking to resolve unequal access to land and land ownership, I'd love to also hear more about those people, those groups, those initiatives, so people in the audience might be able to support and get involved. Yeah, thank you. That's a great question. Um yeah, I mean, there's just so many. There, everything from groups like uh, Shelter Force, I don't know if you're familiar, that really curates a lot of the work that happens around housing, displacement, um, some of the techniques that people have around using ordinances and other local policy. So they're, they're, it's kind of a national organizing group. And then there's individual frontline groups, everyone from Uprose in Brooklyn to Got Green in Seattle to, I mean, there's so many. The Climate Justice Alliance has a number of members that are working on on these issues, um, land and displacement and so forth. Actually, also Movement Generation facilitated recently uh, a black land liberation convening and out of that came a network of folks who are focused on on land housing and how to build power and ownership of land as well as to to resist the challenges around housing and have everyone having a right to a place called home so those are just a few examples Yes. Well, yeah. um, Thank you for those. And I'm sure uh, if people want to start uh, diving into those groups that you've mentioned, they'll probably find more, the more research one does. So thank you for starting us off. Um, sure. So to transition to another topic, because there's so many things that I would love to cover with <laughs> you. Um, I know that so much of your work lands within women's rights, racial justice, and HIV AIDS, particularly with the Women of Color United, the organization that you Mm. co-founded. And I'm wondering if you could tell us about what this work has shown you about how HIV AIDS intersects with climate change. Mm. Yeah, so on the... On the challenging front are the ways that women are disproportionately negatively impacted by climate change. Everything from the spike in gender-based violence in the aftermath of disasters that's been that has been documented in disaster after disaster. Um, whether it's the earthquake in Gujarat to Hurricane Katrina to the BP oil drilling disaster is a well-known, well-documented fact that women experience more sexual violence and the insecurity of the aftermath of disasters during and after, and that women experience more domestic violence in the aftermath, whether it's because of the stress or otherwise after disasters. And so this is a cautionary uh, note as we begin to experience more in the way of the frequency and uh, severity of extreme weather events. Uh, secondly, that women, uh, both in the global south and the U.S., uh, who are more likely to be 
uh, food insecure, where we have these shifts in agricultural yields resulting from climate change, we are seeing where there's a risk to women becoming even more food insecure, particularly female-headed households. On the driver's side of climate change, the fact that there are these toxic facilities that are spewing uh, pollution that some of which includes endocrine disruptors, specifically, of course, interfering with reproductive health of women. And um, one of the other toxins that comes out of these smokestacks is mercury, which is known to be tied to birth defects. So just multiple ways that the women are impacted by those those polluting facilities that are also emitting the greenhouse gas emissions that drive climate change. And then also on the driver's side, some of the operations of, uh, of oil and gas industries, and particularly as we talk about indigenous women in the, the man camps, quote unquote, in South Dakota, North Dakota, and elsewhere, there is again documented, known, they even did a big thing on CNN on the the impacts of these man camps on women, where women, indigenous women and others, have have disappeared or have have suffered from high rates of sexual violence in the context of these man camps, where men are coming to work these oil operations, they're away from their families for months on end, and it just literally develops into these places where there's tra- high lit levels of trafficking high levels of sexual violence, high levels of of drug usage, um, opiates and opioids and um, heroin and so forth is is proliferate in those places. And it's women who are paying the highest cost. So there are so many ways that women are disproportionately impacted. But at this end, at the same time, women are, are most able, and then time and time again, it has, it's shown that women have a higher awareness of climate change, have a, a, a higher likelihood of acting on climate change, um, that if women are controlling resources, they're more likely to make uh, choices that are, that are more um, sustainable choices in terms of uh, whether it's products or practices and so forth. So women have a more of a conservation edge and leadership around these issues. Yet at the same time, women are underrepresented in the leadership and the decision making that can stem the tide of climate change and address the impacts of climate change. So whether it's the halls of Congress, the public service commissions and the public utilities commissions that govern energy practices, and we know energy practices are a major polluter and tying to those to those very challenges that I talked about with women, as well as a major driver of climate change. And yet the people who are making decisions about our energy practices are the ones who are least affected by these by these things. And so so you see that kind of pattern there of most impacted, uh, most likely to make good decisions, less likely to be in a decision making position. Mm-hmm. So. Mm -hmm. I'll wrap up there.
<sighs> yeah, I see that time and time again where the people that are most affected don't have a seat at the table. They don't have mm-hmm. the opportunity to even be heard, um, let alone have any decision-making power. And then if yeah. furthermore, the mainstream media doesn't pick up the other narrative. So yes. it's this complete silencing of the voices. It's a silencing of power-making, decision-making. I was able to speak with Candy Mossett from the Indigenous Environmental mm. Network a few months mm-hmm. ago, and she spoke about the man camps in North Dakota. This is a topic that does not get enough attention at all. And then mm-hmm. with these women who are experiencing such intense uh, suffering on top of their communities being destroyed, on top of not having access or power, they, they're many times not even heard and justice is not served, especially for indigenous women in those areas. Um, they couldn't even mm-hmm. most of the time take these rapists to court. There's no justice. So uh, yeah. I just want to take a moment mm-hmm. and um yeah the people that are most affected are not the ones who have the decision making power and i have a few statistics here um so one of the statistics an african american family making 50 to 60,000 dollars per year is more likely to live near or next to a toxic facility than a white american family making 10 to 15,000 per year Another one, over mm-hmm. 78% of African-Americans live within a 30-mile radius of coal-fired power plants. I just want to read that again. Mm-hmm. Over 78% of African-Americans live within a 30-mile radius of coal-fired power plants, which also emits sulfur dioxide, nitrogen oxide, mercury, arsenic, and lead. Also, another one, 71% of African-Americans live in counties in violation of EPA air quality standards. Mm-hmm. So uh, communities of color, to quote you from an article that I read, are, quote, the global south within the north. Mm-hmm. And they are being sacrificed so the rest of the dominant culture can keep polluting, keep consuming. It's no coincidence that these sacrificed communities are also the ones who are politically disenfranchised with low property values, who are food insecure and contributed least to greenhouse gas emissions. You know, these are all Mm -hmm. things that you've touched on. And so I guess I'm wondering, what does a just transition mean for these communities that are up against so much and that are just trying to deal with the toxicity and, and all the things that we had mentioned before, you know, what does a just transition look like and what are the steps to getting there? Not, and of course, I know so many have already started like with, with yourself, with the groups that you've mentioned before, but I'd love to give the audience uh, some visual aid on what mm. a just transition future, when it's really put into play, could look like. Mm-hmm a good question. So, so one, I mean, kind of core principle and practice around a just transition is that it needs to be led by those who are most impacted by where we are now in terms of the very 
systemic oppression that we've talked about. Because, you know, there's this fallacy of a rising tide lifting all boats. But uh, unless there are people in those boats, I mean, there's some people who aren't on the boats at all, whose boats are not seaworthy in any way. And so it doesn't, it, you know, that, that, that analogy doesn't work for systems in real time. And so really having, having the folks who are most impacted defining what a just transition is for them and then following that, that vision in terms of implementation. And then, of course, the devil becomes in the detail. So as we talk about a systemic trans, transformation from a society that's built on principles and practices where it's in, they're inherently winners and losers, where kind of capitalism means that, you know, there's there's capitalization and then there are those who are capitalized upon. And it's usually, you know, of course, through the reckless extraction and usage of natural resources. And then usually, and then we then we've had this extraction of, of people and then the 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 use and abuse of, of people through systemic oppression. And so how do we really um, affirm human rights and earth rights as we move forward? And how do we affect a systemic transformation where the vision of, of people most impacted will be things like everyone having access to clean air, clean water, uncontaminated land, and the commons in terms of a place called home, access to energy, access to clothing and, you know, shelter and food and all of those basics. And, and, but if we have a system that's fundamentally based on, you know, again, the luxuries of the few, um, sacrificing just the very basics for the many, then that total systems transformation is such a, a large and comprehensive vision. The question is, how do we get there and how do we make sure that we have kind of interim systems in that in that transition so a lot of times when we talk about just transition we're a lot of times talking about what's happening on the end point which is the realization of that vision i just described but then the pathways to it how do we kind of affect a like completely turn over the system but while not having casualties in the process, you know? Um, so they say to make an omelet, you have to break some eggs. And that's kind of the way that people not necessarily dismiss those types of impacts, but uh, just kind of make them sound like accepted inevitabilities. But it is the people who are most marginalized that end up being those broken eggs. <laughs> so we really have to think through like, okay, if we're going to transform our, our energy system from one where we're you know, where we're joint burning energy through, you know, oil and gas production and coal-based production and nuclear energy as well, then as we transform to a system that, you know, that the frontline communities talk about in terms of distributed generation and community ownership and control of resources, what is the, what is the, what are the interim steps to get there and how do we make sure that people aren't harmed in the meantime? Um, one of the one of the one example of of the same is that I am all I'm totally on the camp of being against water privatization. But in Baltimore, for example, after they fought off water privatization, right after that, there were 23,000 people on the rolls to get their water shut off. So how do we make sure that we're being just as strong about what we're against and then really 
knowing what that alternative system looks like and making sure that as we move towards that alternative system, that there aren't casualties along the way. Um, so, and we can really do that, talk about that system by system, energy systems, our water system, our, our food systems, each and every one of those systems needs to, to in, undergo a change. Cause whether we have food where, like it's not even based on agriculture or actual original food. <laughs> so it's put together in some kind of test tube and it's not only not good for you, but it's actively bad for you um, in terms of some of the foods that we have access to and particularly that communities of color, low-income communities have access to. So how do we transform that entire food system and what are the steps that get us there without having casualties along the way? So literally for each and every system where this total transformation is needed, we have to have you know, the hearts and minds together to figure out what the process is to move towards that transformation. I know that was kind of long and repetitious, and, <laughs> but uh, hopefully that, that uh, makes some level of sense. Mm, no, it, it totally does. And I think back to a conversation I had with Sharif Whiteland, who works down in Louisiana, and we were mm -hmm. discussing just transition and it was really fascinating to understand it from her point of view, which I really agree with, which is we have one version of renewable transition that we're sold, which is mostly white dominated, mostly male dominated solar and wind. And really the ownership and the investment stays within the small already elite group. And none of the financial gains or the positive impacts are really shared with other communities. And so how she was explaining it, the working class people are really amazing with oil rigs. And what's happening is as renewable comes along, those people who have the skills are not always given the jobs. They don't have ownership in the companies. And so sometimes they're just used as modern day slaves to these renewable projects that are then shipped out somewhere else for another community, say in uh, New England, to get the benefits while they're still having to deal with the repercussions of the fossil fuel industry. So I don't know if, the, if mm -hmm. I explained that well, but it was a really important view and understanding of the transition to renewable and why we talk about a just transition. It's not transition mm -hmm. to renewable and leave the marginalized people behind as in the same type of system. It's how do we uplift communities, specifically marginalized communities. And mm -hmm. like you said, um, uh, how the, the very few have the luxury items while the majority of people don't even have the basic needs. And, you know, I have this quote from you, and I'll just kind of pull out a few things, but you were saying that, quote, we only have 1.1% of the energy jobs, and we have less than 0.1% of the revenue from the energy sector. So we're getting all the negative impacts of the energy economy, but none of the gains of the energy economy in terms of economic well-being. So again, like, that's just right there. I mean, those are the numbers the, the impact, the consequences, and no benefits. Um, and then there's, you know, in this quote, on top of that, that $41 billion being extracted from our communities 
it gets sent back in the communities in pollution because of the burning of fossil fuels. And at the same time, it's also being used when those companies use that money to pay to push back against clean air regulations when they're paying lobbyists to do that. And this is, you know, this quote really puts into perspective how convoluted and complex the system is set up to keep people down and poisoned, honestly. So, because the environmental movement has had this reputation, or at least the, the leaders have been mostly white, upper to middle class people who aren't being affected as much and all of these stories that you've been telling that we've been talking about aren't in the forefront and then Mm -hmm. we're not really thinking about the thorough solutions it's really detrimental to us it's really detrimental to this movement to be having these partial narratives um yes so uh, you know, it's just the truth is that segregation and colonization and slavery and all of these things that we've been talking about are still really alive and well. They're not put to rest. And no. I think the condition psychological barriers separate us even further on top of that. And then the impacts of climate change are vastly disproportionate. And I think everyone is that at least is aware is feeling this urgency and uh, this this one intensive I was in, uh, this amazing woman, this woman of color stood up and said, you know, I am the polar bear on the ice. And Mm. there also are actual polar bears on the fading ice. And um, I'm trying to get to this, I'm trying to get to a question, but it's just, um, I guess maybe how do you see the dissolution of white supremacy being influenced by rapid climate change? Mm. Yeah. I would say a couple of things with that. Um, Particularly for better or worse, with this uh, current political context that we're in, there's a growing understanding of the pervasiveness of white supremacy in modern day society, like a recognition that that we have not overcome to the extent that many had allowed themselves to believe. So one thing is that I am seeing a greater level of, of acknowledgement and of organizing around white supremacy with that with that deeper understanding so there's that on the promising side uh the challenge is that it is so pervasive and systemic and written into in some in invisible ink but no less influential (laughs) into each and every one of our systems and so many of our policies and so forth, it's just so insidious and pervasive that that it's going to take so much more than people just kind of waking up to the fact that racism still exists. <laughs> so, um, and I don't think that enough people are there in terms of recognizing the need for a total systems transformation because our our systems are rooted in white supremacy, you know, that it's going to be a, 
a pretty um, heavy lift, <laughs> to, to say it mildly, um, to, to get there. So I guess that's all to say that, that I think that there's a dawning recognition and a dawning um, sense of cohesiveness, even amongst the different um, nodes of social justice organizing, where we've had some silos or a lot of silos around, you know, whether I'm organizing around health or, or gender justice or climate change or racial justice, recognizing that the white supremacy is a common enemy for us all and it affects each and every one of our um, of our silos, so to speak. And and so you see like more of a um, a collective organizing around what that means with regard to intersectionality being rooted in how we organize, but folks are still learning that. And there's still a lot of, um, a lot of fault lines in, in getting to what that means in terms of working together and working through, working across the differences in a way that builds power. Um, yeah. So hopefully that makes sense. That's all to say in some that, uh, that we see more people kind of waking up and, and, and recognizing that racism still exists and and beginning to see the pervasiveness of white supremacy, just regular folks. We see people who are in the organizing, in the social justice organizing, who are recognizing that we can't, we're not gonna get too far unless we work on white supremacy and that there is a need for intersectional approaches and we need to, and it's gonna take a bit for us to get there in terms of going beyond the recognition to actually making the changes that we need to make. Um, but again, there are some bright lights that you're seeing in there. Everything from, you know, watching Dr. Phil and seeing a white nationalist coming together with a Black Lives Matter person and a white nationalist recognizing the error of his ways to seeing you know, just seeing people who are making connections across differences and people who are experiencing major self-transformation um, in the process. So that always gives hope. We just need to have that happen at scale and we need to figure out how to make that happen at scale. So, yeah. Oh my gosh, I'm going to have to YouTube that Dr. Phil episode. <laughs> the- <laughs> it might have- yeah, I hope it was Dr. Phil. It was one of those shows, you know. Yeah.
have that healing happen at scale is mandatory to move forward Mm -hmm. in a way that's actually dealing with the root causes because um you know like we've been discussing we can't just capture carbon out of the atmosphere and keep going in the way we're going and think that that's the solution or sign the paris accord or put on some solar panels and think we've done it um when you're talking about all the siloed groups them coming together with commonalities is so important and how that is absolutely challenging especially when resources you know financial resources are are tight because things that are actually beneficial for earth and people aren't funded well and then Mm -hmm. um and then of course there's so much wounding and horizontal hostility that comes up and i've been thinking about this a lot with the groups that are in this movement towards a regenerative culture, how in a way sometimes they're even pitted against each other while the other side, let's say like the capitalist extractive uh, industry side, seems to be so organized and Mm -hmm. uh, uh, so on top of how to keep their machine running. I am always thinking about how to learn from their organizational prowess Mm. everybody in this regenerative movement can support each other more teach each other i really feel like this is this moment where we can just be real and honest but ultimately love one another because we need everyone we need each other right now to dismantle and rebuild and um and i i'm like i said i have so many questions and thoughts for you i i know we're coming to the end of our talk and i definitely wanted to ask you about mass incarceration and climate justice and uh, a number of other things but perhaps i could just open up the floor any other topics that you feel you want to mention or you know whatever topic is is most pertinent and passionate for you right now i'd really love to hear about as our time is coming to an end yeah thank you yeah so this whole matter of mass incarceration has so many intersections with climate change both on the problem side and on the solution side and uh on the problem side we have the challenge of the tie between what's coming out of these smokestacks and some of the challenges faced by children, um, whether it's kids who are having a hard time going to school, having a hard time paying attention in school because, you know, you know lead and manganese and other uh, cognitive functioning disruptors are part of what comes out of those smokestacks. We know the sulfur dioxide, nitrogen dioxide come out of those smokestacks in, on mass and that kids who have asthma are more likely to have asthma attacks when they're exposed to those particular toxins. And we also know that if you're living next to a toxic facility, which as we said, at least 78% of African-Americans are, your property values on on average are 15% lower. So, and therefore our schools are underfinanced because property values are what finances our schools. So you have kids having a hard time paying attention in school 
having a hard time going to school on poor air quality days or just because they're not feeling well with the asthma, and then you have under-resourced schools, then we know the studies show that if you're not on grade level by the third grade, you're more likely to enter into the school-to-prison pipeline. So right away, we see these connections. We also see that um, some of these toxins are actually tied to, um, to violent behavior and behavioral issues where we we saw the, the spike in the exposure to lead in communities like Flint actually came at the same time as the spike in murder rates in places like Flint. And so and we in, in countries in Europe in particular, they saw they've found with studies a direct correlation between um, exposure to a number of these kind of metals in our air from lead to manganese to others and violent behavior in communities. So we see all of that linked together. Um, then on the other side, in terms of climate change impacts, we saw that after Hurricane Katrina, that the deputies literally abandoned prisoners in their prison cells and, and left, just evacuated and left people locked up. And so sewage tainted waters were rising and getting into these cells. People didn't have food to, to drink, food to eat or water to drink. They had to dig through the walls for ventilation and li- literally just treated as if they weren't human and weren't worthy of rescue and weren't worthy of safety and of, of food and water and that they were just, you know, expendable. And so that lack of humanity of people who are in prison, whether they were guilty of what they were charged for or whether they um, or whether they were a, a, a victim and or a survivor of their environment that led to certain behaviors or whether they didn't commit any crimes at all, because we know that racial profiling has led to incarceration of folks who didn't necessarily even do the crimes that they're being accused of. Whatever category people fall into, no one deserves to be um, disregarded as if they aren't even human and unworthy of concern. And then at the same time, we see where prison labor is actually used in the cleanup in the aftermath of disasters. And so we've seen that the BP oil drilling disaster and other disasters. And we've seen that we saw that even in fighting the wildfires out in California. And so people are, are engaged in these hazardous activities, being exposed to toxins or exposed to, to, to things as dangerous as fire. And, um, and all of these circumstances are are on the increase with the increase in the severity of extreme weather events. So there are so many um, linkages with our prison industrial complex and the climate change circumstance, not to mention the privatization of prisons, just like the privatization of water, the privatization of schools, all in similar categories of privatization of whether it's using water as a basic resource to gain wealth for others while other people are having their water shut off, privatizing schools as opposed to investing in public schools where, again, people are having uneven school experiences, which, again, as I said before, is tied to the prison industrial complex itself. 
And then when we have privatization of prisons as in that entire in that same pattern where people uh, who as, as they're building wealth are advantaged by having as many people imprisoned as possible, which only exacerbates an existing system that that over incarcerates generally and particularly um, people of color. So so much there. But um, yeah, I, I could really go on. Mm. Oh my goodness, thank you, Jackie, for going where you did go. There's, you know, you had kind of mentioned not in these words, but um, we can analyze and think and feel and, and talk about these issues, but we have to do things, all of us, actually step up and take action. And there's so many ways to do that in all of our communities all over the world. And I think that in this country, we still have certain rights <laughs> to stand up, uh, although that can be argued. Um, but yes. it's, it's, I think, imperative that we all hold our line of integrity and our beliefs of what we know is right and support each other through this. And um, I am so appreciative of you and your work and how thoroughly you have been able to share about that complexity to people like me and the people who are listening. If we're activists, if we're conscious people, uh, really understanding the fullness of the story and feeling it, acknowledging it, and then doing something about it from that place. Um, yeah. yeah, so thank you so much for your time. I know you are a really busy person with so many important things to do. So I, I appreciate all the time you spent with us today. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and thank you for helping to build a movement and getting the word out there and, and stoking these conversations. I deeply appreciate it. Thank you for listening to For the Wild Podcast. I'm Ayana Young. The music you heard today was Omra Rukpa Diwujibi Naimu by the Ita Ensemble of Nigeria, then The West by Althea and Donna, and then God's Little Birds by Sister Om Terrell. I want to thank our producers, March Young and Reach Out, our research director, Madison Mogulski, and media director Molly Lebo.